This past week, I had an occasion to um, watch on the internet some events going on on the other side of America in Seattle. A friend of mine called who's a professor of Russian history at the University of Georgia. And we were having a conversation about it. In the midst of the conversation, this is what he said to me. He said, where did all these crazy kids come from? Don't they understand what's going on? And I said, um, Robert, you teach Russian history. You know what happened in 1917. You know how people begin events like this. And we are broken people in a broken world. But I know one thing about what's going on in the world in which we live. These people were not born. They were made. They were taught things about the world that simply are not true. And, and somehow they believe that the rest of us have, have lived and just simply allowed things to go on. But we've watched a pattern that's so frightening. And, and it goes all the way back to World War II. I, I'd mentioned this several weeks ago. There was a time when we, through our most vaunted minds, decided that the problem in America, no doubt, was education. We just didn't have enough education. People were ignorant. And if they could get the, the right amount of education, we could solve all these problems. You remember that? started right after World War II. And suddenly colleges began to sprout up and grow. And, and at some point we decided, you know, we're going to be so superior that we're not going to worry about training anybody to do the, the, the difficult jobs, the labor jobs, the specialty jobs. We, we're just going to send everybody to college and, and, and the world will be a great place. And look where we are. This is happening by the vaunted minds that have studied in college and received the degrees. But the problem all along was, was not ignorance. Not at all. And the solution definitely wasn't education. The true problem back then was spiritual, like it's always been. And the solution was not educational, but it was salvation. The further America has moved from God since World War II, the deeper we've got entrenched into humanism, believing that somehow man can solve all the problems of this world. And this story in Genesis 27 going into Genesis 28 proves that man's best ideas always fail. Because they did. Remember last week with what was going on with Isaac and Rebekah. Both of them felt like they could solve the problems in their family. In fact, they thought they could interpret God's will in their own way. And they both discovered what a disaster it was. And here in this passage, they finally get it right. They understand that they have to listen to God to really be the people that they need to be. You see, the problem was that there were moms and dads coming out of World War II. And they became consumers for the first time in their lives where they, as young people and their parents, 
went through the greatest depression in the history of the world in modern times. And many times it was just an effort to find enough food to eat. There were no possessions, no material things to hold on to. But after the war, suddenly there was an abundance of of, of consumer items and new things coming out almost every day. And they figured out a way to get them hooked on that. And they hooked them hook, line, and sinker. An addiction to materialism came about because there was just so many things there. Remember that before World War II, the average grocery store in a rural area did not have aisles in it. It had shelves. And the shelves contained around 250 items. And that met every need the people had. Today, if you go in the, in the aisle at Winn-Dixie, if they haven't changed it again, if you go on the aisle that has salad dressings, I counted 368 varieties and brands of salad dressing. You could starve to death deciding what you want. Now, they're not doing that because we need that. They're doing that because they can sell more of that product. It's amazing how many things. Just Google it. No, don't Google it. If you Google it, it'll follow you for weeks through the Internet because they'll find out you're looking for something, and they'll follow you because you see that's what they want. You know those neat little things that you keep on your kitchen counter and in your den and all that, that you can talk to them, and, and they'll play music and everything like that? You know what else they're doing? They're listening to you. And they're catching certain words that you say. You say the word that they're looking for and they're representing a company that's selling that item, you will have on your browser many of those things show up. Also on Facebook or Twitter, it's going to be there. Because they want to literally pinpoint what you want and sell it to you. Not because you need it, but because they want to make money. And we've become so addicted to that in our world that we've become a people who think that what we want is absolutely perfect. And we're like God. We just have to speak it, and and it's available. That's the generation that's in Seattle that's angry because something or things didn't go their way or as they perceived it. And it amazes me when you go and talk with some of these young people about the history that they're angry about. You ask them to explain the history, and they can't. And then you say, well, you know, if we don't remember our past, good, bad, and indifferent, we're going to repeat it. And they say, oh, no, no, we're going going to change the world forever. We've got a generation that does not know God. And they don't understand what's going on. And they're doing the one thing that they think they can do that will be successful. They're plotting and planning to destroy what they believe is the institution that's threatening them. And they want to overthrow it. You know, there are a lot of things that may go on in Selma, Alabama. The last thing you'll ever see here is us burning down a hamburger joint. We don't have many left. Believe me, uh, we'll we'll put armed guards around our Wendy's. Uh, Jacks, don't you dare bring a match near that place. I love that place. 
they don't understand what's going on. They don't, they don't realize what their future will become by what they're doing in their present because they have no notion about who God is. So today I want to think with you for a few minutes about the idea of something that, that let's just ponder in our own minds, and, and it's this. How can we look at Scripture and get back to a true life-altering change that moves toward God? Because it seems like much of our culture is moving in a godless direction, they feel like that they can change things in the way they imagine. They don't understand the need for an overarching God who understands right and wrong, good and bad, that has our best desires at heart. So how can we change that? How can we avoid being like Isaac and Rebekah were or like many of the vigilantes that are set on destroying any object, any store, any industry, any icon that seems to subvert their will and destroy it. First of all, I want you to think about this, and this is a good phrase to write down and think about. Initiate consecration, not criticism. You don't begin with criticism to work with things in life, you begin by consecrating what is there. Now, criticism is a unique word. It's become very powerful in our culture. I remember when I was uh, in my undergraduate studies, uh, the word criticize was not a negative. It was a way of taking something apart and rethinking it. There had become a series of thought processes. It started way back in the 70s and moved far forward, and it's, we called it the post-structuralist uh, concept of thinking. Jacques Derrida and Stanley Fish and some of those other great thinkers came up with this idea, and it's where you take things apart to determine what it really is. And the problem I have with, with, with that kind of classical criticism is this. There's some things in life we are not given the tools with which we can take things apart and examine them. We are not the scientist in the lab examining life. The lab is this world and God is the scientist. He's the one that built all of this. And we cannot put God under a microscope. I remind you that Scripture cannot be examined under a microscope. It is the microscope. To examine us. And when you go after the Bible and try to take it apart and pick it apart and figure out what you will, will read and what you will appreciate, you're in trouble. Because this decides what we should be. It guides us in the right direction. And it does so with such an incredible love that, that we forget about that. If you go man's way, it's always anger. It's always bitterness. It's always frustration. You know, what's amazing is this. If we begin with a blessing and not with judgment, things are so different. That was the problem between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And that was the problem with Rebekah and Isaac. They, they wanted to look at a situation and say, oh, this is horrible, this is going to happen, so therefore I've got to do this. 
Yet their viewpoint and vantage was not that of God, it was of man. And they destroyed any relationship for the first half of their lives that their, their boys would have. Jacob and Esau were bent upon being enemies, not friends. Sometimes people, even parents and families, with the best intentions can destroy relationships. When they go into a situation with judgment rather than a blessing, problems begin. Criticism will never get you to the place of a synthesis of ideas that will change the world. It will leave you tattered and torn and frustrated. How can we encourage our children and our grandchildren to go in the right direction? How can we challenge them to become all that they need to be because we love them without criticizing them and tearing them apart? How can we create an environment where our children will desire to live in obedience to Christ knowing that's the only way and the best way to live? Dear people, we do it only one way. By example, you cannot lecture someone without demonstrating what it means to be a Christian. I've told you before that one of the neatest things I ever found out without going in the military, my wife was in the military, is that when you go through, through uh, uh, basic training, as they used to call it, you have in there not a teacher, but a drill instructor. The difference between a teacher and a drill instructor is the teacher will, up on the board, give you theories and concepts and ideas. A drill instructor will go with you, and he will drag you through the mud, up the trees, through the bushes, under the buildings. He will wear you out, but he'll be there every step of the way. Why? Why do they do that? Because it gives strength to the soul to know that this is something I can do and that person taught me how to do it. Suzanne told me one time that the meanest women she ever met were the drill instructors she had in San Antonio. But she said, after I left basic training, I had a huge amount of respect for them because they were able to take 200 young girls and turn them into strong women that not only had a sense of, 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 of strength within them, but a sense of, I can protect myself and I can protect others. Oh, how we need drill instructors. And you know what a drill instructor is, as far as Christians are concerned? It's someone that disciples another person. You go along with them. You disciple them. I don't believe it's, it's enough just to stand in a pulpit and preach to people. No. I've got to disciple someone. And I do. I have someone that's discipling me. And I am under their tutelage. They're older than I am. They've lived longer than I've lived. They are able to look at me and love and give me direction. If we don't learn to do that as Christians, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Don't follow preachers. The, 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 the best preachers in the world can fail. And when I say fail, I don't mean that they do wicked or horrible things. They can make a misstep. And they can be destroyed in the eyes of the world. We're watching that happen right now 
to a very great preacher in Alabama, and he did nothing wrong. In the climate of political correctness, he will drown, and his reputation will be soiled, and that's so sad. That will not happen in heaven, not at all. But in this world, it's sad what happens to many good people. But I want you to realize not only that, but I want you to think about this. Don't rule out purity as a goal. Let me explain what I mean by that. We're in a society where, where broken people sometimes get comfortable with their brokenness. And they seem to just revel in it. I can remember years ago when they became very aggravated because the folks that were teaching sex education in the public school, they said, you know, we're just not going to teach abstinence because they said that's unreasonable. They said, young people won't do that. But amazingly, they do. And more of them practice purity than you can ever imagine. Many of them have to do so very quietly because if they made it a public, a, a public statement about that, they'd be ridiculed. They'd be criticized. They'd become targets by vicious people. But don't ever rule out purity as the goal. The greatest blessing you'll ever receive in this life is to begin early on as saying to God, I belong to you, therefore I walk in your footsteps and I will preserve my life. I will not expose myself to evil and sin. Sin is like the worst stain you can ever get. And I want to remind you of this and think about this. We talk about washing sins away, and we sing songs about that, Jeff. You didn't write those songs, but we sing them. But the reality is, if you go back and read Scripture, our sins aren't washed away in this world. They're covered over by the blood of Jesus. The stain of sin marks all of us for all of our days because we can't unlearn it in this world. We can't forget where we've been, and Satan uses that to pull us back. If, if you enjoy, and, and I bought some of these the other day. God help me, I shouldn't have. Dr. Chittam's not here, so I can tell you. I bought some of the, the long frozen pops, and they were not sugar-free. Three of those, and my eyes are glassy, and I can't even move straight. They sure were good, but that's sort of like sin. I can't unlearn that they're there. Now, I'm 62 years old. I shouldn't have a problem by now with things like that. But it goes on and on and on. Temptation is, is that way. It marks us. And we can't unlearn that. And we struggle with that. So that's what I'm saying. If you're at a point where you can say, I've, I've never encountered this and I'm facing it, please remain pure. Make a difference in your life. Don't spend your life struggling with sin and, and never get beyond that in such a way that you can help others. For some people, the only person they can really get across this world safely is themselves. Because they spend their whole life struggling with sin. 
We've got to be people who are overcomers. And once we overcome those problems, we need to go along and to help others. God wants us to be victorious in that way. And I pray that we can become that way. I read this the other day, and I was really impressed with it. I, uh, Murray, I know I'm pronouncing these names wrong, but some of the great men over the years, the virtuosos that played uh, uh, that were pianists all over the world have touched lives. And I read this story of Ander Foldus, who was at age 16. He had struggled and struggled to play. He was Hungarian. His family, they were poor, but he was able to get to the right people because he had a gift. And, and he played like no one else. And, and there in Budapest, he had the opportunity to meet a man named Emil von Sauer. And he helped him drastically to learn. And he was young, and, and he wanted to accomplish this, and he kept his focus on that, and he didn't get distracted by the things that distracted his friends. And when he played for von Sauer, von Sauer, who had, was the last living student of Franz Liszt, as an old man himself, he listened to Ander Foldis play, and he walked over to him, and he leaned down, and he kissed him on the forehead. And he looked him in the eyes, and he said, I want to explain something to you. He said, that kiss is not for me. My son, when I was your age, I became a student of Franz Liszt. And he kissed me on the forehead, and he said, I am passing along to you the kiss that I received from Beethoven that gave me the strength to know that I was going in the right direction. And he said, I am giving you that succession of blessing to go forward. That 16-year-old boy, in his biography when he was in his 80s, said many times when I prepare to play, he said, I touch my forehead and I weep. Because I know I'm not playing just for myself. I'm doing so as an example for others that perfection is a goal worth reaching for. Our blessing on our children is not an event, but it's a process. We've got to bless our children. We've got to be involved with their lives. We've got to remain pure for their sake. Because they're watching us. As a congregation, we need to be a pure people. We need to confess our sins. It seems like sometimes in the church, people spend their lives hiding their sins. We need to confess and forsake those sins. I don't mean for you to come forward and confess to everybody. No. Sins are to be confessed no more openly than they're committed but what I mean by confessing is to make your heart right and then reach out and help others coming along the road, discipling them. I think that Isaac and Rebecca learned an important lesson. May God help us to learn that same lesson. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that in your holy word you strengthen us you give us direction. You don't ridicule and criticize us. No. You bless us. 
you give us a way of escape. And we are so thankful that you do that. For Lord, without that, we would be hopeless and helpless. But because of that blessing in our life, we're changed. And I pray that we would continue to move in the direction that is toward you and not away from you. That we would not move in the direction of humanism, but move in the direction of our Savior. And that we would change those before us in a mighty way. Father, speak to someone this morning who needs to come before your throne and just simply say, Lord, forgive me and direct me as I go forward. Bless me because your Holy Spirit is within me. And I desire that the Holy Spirit would have preeminence in all that I do. Father, speak to someone this morning that has a decision to make. And may that be uppermost in their mind. And may that be resolved even now. We pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.